me to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. Let me just give you a little background for those of you that may not know a whole lot about this book. It was written by a guy named Luke. He was a doctor, and he traveled with a number of the disciples. And in this book of the Bible in the New Testament called Acts, sometimes people refer to it as Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Spirit or Acts of the Church. But for the most part, it's about the first 30 years of the church's history um, that Luke records. Obviously, there's all kinds of things taking place. But um, the Holy Spirit asks Luke and shows Luke to write these things. These are the things that I guess you could say were most necessary for the early church to record and for us to be aware of. And so I began teaching from this book, from Acts, last week under the title, and I will be continuing this for some time, probably up until we head into the Christmas season. The church is at its best when? The church is at its best when? And last week in Acts chapter 1, and for the most part, I'm going to try to glean one truth from every chapter I'm not going to promise that all the way through. It's possible I might dip into a couple of chapters a few times and maybe leave some out. But for the most part, I'm going to try to do one thought from each chapter as we're moving through Acts. Last week, I, I dealt with this, that the church is at its best when we declare Jesus everywhere in the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is at its best when we declare Jesus everywhere in the power of the Holy Spirit. I was thinking a little bit about <clears throat> how when you're, when you're talking or, or preaching or sharing about the church, whether it's a local church or the church as a whole, and you're speaking to church people, um, it's a little bit like preaching to the choir. Um, it's a little self-serving, uh, and, and perhaps it's a lot self-serving. I don't know. I, I guess I'll, I'll leave that up to you folks uh, to sort out. But often, the church is the focus of some people who scrutinize the church and like to focus on this. The church is at its worst when. And um, if I can use the terminology, churched, if you've been churched for a while or you've gone to a local church or local churches for a while I think the choir us folk who are the consumers of this edible called church life we're aware of that the, the church is at its worst when and uh, I could probably preach for a few months on that wouldn't be terribly uplifting uh, but I could probably do that. Um, we often talk about, you know, regrets and living with regrets. And if you had opportunities to do things over again, would you? And I know some people think that that's pointless, that the past is in the past. But I, I want you to know that as a pastor, 
there are a number of things that I would like to go back and undo if I could them, because I, I see those as when Brent was at his worst, he did or said or didn't do. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to report there aren't a lot of those, at least according to Brent. <laughs> but there are some, and my wife Karen is here this morning, and we've talked about some of those things over the years, that if I had an opportunity to go back and prevent something, or if I could fix something, I would certainly take the opportunity to do that. So I think we are all aware at some level that we're not always at our best, and there's always work to be done. But let me focus on when the church is at its best. And here's, what I, here's part of what I think. If the church is doing the things that the church is supposed to be doing, if the church is focused on the things the church should be focused on, we are less likely to be at our worst. I think the church is often at its worst when we're not focused on the things that we should be focused on and not busy being the church and, and, and you know, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere in the power of the Holy Spirit and obviously other things. I think when we are not focused, when we, we don't have a vision that we're pursuing, when we don't have goals as a church as a whole or goals as individuals within the church, families, couples, those kinds of things. I think that's when we get into trouble. I think we spend a lot of time then talking about and doing things that we ought not to be talking about and doing things that we ought not to be doing. And that's because uh, we're not focused. Um, you know the old expression that's found in Revelation 23, verse 1? Uh, Idle hands are the tools of the devil. You all know there's no Revelation 23, 1, right? I'm just making that up. Okay, good. But I think it's true. I think it's true that when we're not focused on the things that we should be focused on, that we tend to get ourselves into trouble because we find something else to do. Keeps us busy. So Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2. So this morning, this Thanksgiving morning, I want us to move into Acts chapter 2. Last week, it was uh, Jesus with his disciples. There's about 120 of them, and they are gathered with Jesus after he's been raised from the dead. He's been alive with them in the flesh for 40 days, and he's been telling them things. And the main thing that he's been telling them is that uh, they need to be witnesses, but don't do that until they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And then once they've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, then they should go out and make him known everywhere in the power of that Spirit. He ascends, and for 10 days... The disciples have been meeting and praying and just kind of, um, what shall I say, killing time. Because Jesus, remember what he said in Acts chapter 1. Don't go anywhere, don't do anything until you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then once that's happened, you will have received power and then go and be my witnesses. So Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and Acts chapter 1, verse 8, go and be my witnesses. So Jesus ascends, and uh, day 1 goes by. Nothing's happened. It's just a day like any other day. 
right? They've been meeting, they've been praying, they've been eating, they've been sleeping, they've been conversing. Day two comes and goes. Nothing significant happens. So they're not going anywhere because they're pretty sure they haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Although I think they're not really sure what that means. Uh, but they know that nothing ha has happened, at least physically. Nothing seems to have stirred spiritually. So they go to day three. They go to day four. They go to day five. You know where this is going, right? They go all the way up to the Feast of Pentecost. That's where you are in Acts chapter 2. And, and that's appropriate for us today. They're on a feast day. There's a harvest day. There's a festival for, for the Jewish nation that they are supposed to gather in Jerusalem and celebrate, much like what we're doing on Thanksgiving Sunday. We're, you know, we're not all farmers anymore, but we are celebrating the blessing of God. And so uh, the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks as it was called, uh, they've uh, stuck around for it, and it's Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost means 50 days after their Passover. So Jesus has been with them for 40 days. He's ascended to heaven. It's day 10 now, which 10 plus 40 brings them to the Feast of Pentecost. And this is what happens in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Let me just read it for you. I've got some other scripture verses that will be up there for you in a moment. When the day of Pentecost came, 50 days after the Passover, the feast day, the disciples, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them, meaning those that were gathered, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages. And as the Spirit enabled them. And I'll get to that in a minute because I realize that sounds a little strange. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, the violent wind, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. So what's going on is they, it's the Pentecost feast day it's the day of Pentecost. The Galileans, because primarily those that were following Jesus at this time are Galileans. And the, all of a sudden, these Galileans that have been in this room after the, the, the wind has come and the tongues of fire have sat upon them, start declaring the praises of God in other languages that they have never learned. They don't speak those languages. They haven't taken a course. They haven't taken Babel. They haven't got that on their pad and they're learning to say hello in some other language. But there's all kinds of people around because it's a festival. It's, it's a feast day. It's, it's Pentecost. And so there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews from all over the Roman world that have gathered on that day because the men from, from Jewish families are supposed to appear in Jerusalem on three feast days. It's mandatory, and this is one of them. So Jerusalem is littered with people, people from all over the Roman world that are Jews that have come to worship. And they hear these Galileans declaring the praises of God in languages that they have never learned. But because there is kind of a world, uh, 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 you know, a United Nations of, of people gathered in Jerusalem, they can hear the Galileans declaring the praises of God in languages that they understand. And this is what it goes on to say here. Verse 7, utterly amazed, they asked, are not all of these men who are speaking Galileans? 
then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phyrega, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, in other words, Gentiles that converted to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. So this is like blowing the top of their head off. They've gathered for a festival, and all of a sudden these Galileans come out of this house declaring the praises of God in languages that are known in those days, that there's no way they could have learned. They're Galileans. Another phrase for Galileans is this, hicks. They're Galileans. They fish. They're not well-educated. They're not sophisticated. They don't travel. They're not learning in their spare time when they're mending their nets. They're not handing their iPads out, trying to learn other languages from around the world. These guys are Galileans. They stay in their neck of their woods. They fish, and that's all they do. So they know even 2,000 years ago, even though they don't know these Galileans, they know it's impossible for them to be declaring the praises of God in all of these other kinds of languages. It's absolutely impossible. And so they ask the question that should be asked, what does this mean? It goes on to say previous to that, amazed and perplexed, what does this mean? And then Peter stands up, verse 14, and he begins to explain what this means. And the reason why I'm focusing on it today isn't just because it's Acts 2 and I've got to figure something from Acts 2 to say. The reason why I'm focusing on it is because I think it's really important for us if we're going to study the rest of the book of Acts and, and ask ourselves this question, you know, when is the church at its best, that we need to get the first couple of chapters of Acts straightened out theologically so we can move forward into the rest. As you would understand this, if you were reading any book of fiction, you would understand that reading the first couple of chapters is significant in order to understand the rest of the book, right? How many of you can read? Most of you. Okay, good. And you know that you can't, you can't start a book off in chapter 3 and just read to the end because you know there's going to be significant plot settings that you've missed. And you're going to read to the last chapter and you're going to find out, oh, it was the butler with the knife in the gallery. And you're going to be going, well, I don't even remember that. Well, because all that was set up in chapter 1 and 2. So for us to understand what comes in the rest of the book of Acts, it's important to get an understanding of what's going on in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. And last week, the emphasis was this. Don't go anywhere. Don't do anything until you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then once that happens, the harnesses are off. Go get them, team. Go get them. Make Jesus known everywhere in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus has ascended to heaven. There's been 10 days. Nothing's happened. And all of a sudden, on the day of Pentecost, this happens. Now, this was perplexing not only then. It is still perplexing today. Now, it's a Pentecostal church. Those of you that are here may not necessarily brand yourself Pentecostal, but you would at least say this. I'm not surprised that Pastor Brent would talk about this 
because it's, quote, a Pentecostal thing. And that's what they do. They talk about this from time to time because it's a Pentecostal church. And so they have to stay true to the roots. I would like for you to look at it this way. Let's forget the labels. Let's forget the brand names. Let's do our best just to look at the text and ask ourselves as unbiased as we possibly can to say, what is this text saying? So I'm reading this last week in order to get ready for today, and something kind of just jumped off the page at me that in all my years of studying and training, I had not really noticed before. I had read it, but I had not noticed it. So where does Peter answer the question, what does this mean? Because that's the question. This is what they've seen. They've seen Peter and those that are gathered, and we know there's 120 of them. So there's the 12 apostles plus the rest of them, right? 108. There's 120 of them. They've been waiting for something to happen, although they don't know what it is. And finally, on the day of Pentecost, this violent wind from heaven shows up. There's these tongues of fire that kind of show up and light on each and every one of them. And all of a sudden, in languages they don't know, they start declaring the praises of God. And it's a fair question by those that are hearing this, and knowing that these Galileans can't speak these languages, it's fair to say to them, what does this mean? If it happens in a Pentecostal church, it's fair for people that don't understand this stuff or maybe aren't theologically aligned with this to ask the question, what does this mean? And so we read, and I'm just going to go over it quick and then I'll dig in. Peter begins in... In, in verse 17 of Acts chapter 2, going all the way back to an Old Testament prophet, going back to a guy named Joel, Joel. And he says that Joel prophesied about this, that God would pour out his spirit. So the first thing that Peter says is this, these languages that you hear that these guys haven't learned, declaring the praises of God is a sign that God is pouring out his spirit. Look at verse 17 of Acts 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Peter identifies two things here immediately. According to Peter, the last days have begun. And one of the signs that the last days have begun is God is pouring out his spirit. But he moves on. As you follow along, you end up in around verse 22. And Peter says this, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you in miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. Now remember, right? The day of Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. This isn't like months and months and months since Jesus has been alive and out there doing things. This is weeks. This is not years. This isn't even months and months and months. It's weeks. It wasn't that long ago that Jesus was out doing all kinds of wonderful things. They know who Jesus is, at least some of them do, that are in and around the region of Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee. They knew who Jesus is. 
And so he references him that God did signs through him. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. So there's immediate reference that Jesus was crucified. But that's not the gist here. The gist moves on. And it says this, verse 24, but God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. God is pouring out his spirit. God has raised Jesus from the dead. And then we keep moving on and go down to verse 34. It speaks about David when David was a leader over Israel. David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Here's the gist. What does this mean? We're hearing people declare the praises of God in languages that they've never learned before. How can that be? Peter says, Joel talked about this, you know, like 700 years ago in Israel's history and said, when those things happen, that's a sign that God is pouring out his spirit. How is it possible that God is pouring out his spirit? God is pouring out his spirit because this one, this guy named Jesus whom you crucified with the help of evil men, has been raised from the dead. He has been resurrected. And because he has been resurrected, he is Lord. Not only has this Jesus been resurrected, but also that he is Lord and King above all else, and the enemies of God have been made his footstool. And so Peter wraps all of that up and says this, he is both Lord and Christ. Because he is both Lord and Christ, he has been raised from the dead. Because he's been raised from the dead, he's ascended to heaven. And the enemies of God will be his footstool. And the Bible reminds us that Jesus said to them that the Holy Spirit can't come until I ascend to my Father. And then my Father will send in my name the Spirit to you. And so what Peter is saying is this, the Spirit has finally come upon the people of Israel because Jesus has been crucified, raised from the dead, and ascended, and in keeping with his promises, he's sending the Holy Spirit. That's what this means. We often interpret this passage to mean simply this, well, God's pouring on his Spirit, that's all he's doing. And he's doing it in some unusual ways, and for some of us, the signs of people speaking in languages they've never learned creeps us out a little bit, makes us a little bit uncomfortable, and we're hoping that there's some way we can explain that away, say it was for the past, or say it's for some people, but it isn't necessarily for me, thank God, because I don't think I ever want to do that. But you have to understand this you have to take the whole chapter and understand what Peter is doing here. Peter is not exalting speaking in unknown languages or tongues. Peter is saying in this, in Acts 2, verse 36, this guy that you killed, this guy that you thought was behind the rock in the tomb, has been raised from the dead, has been ascended and you're seeing the proof of that and the fact that he is pouring out his Holy Spirit. He is both Lord 
and Christ. And it matters that Peter is saying that he is both Lord and Christ. We don't generally have a problem saying things like, Jesus is Lord. He's our Lord. He's our boss. Uh, he's our master. He's calling the shots. He's the one that died on the cross for me. He's the one that's been raised from the dead. He's the one that's ascended to heaven. He's the one that's coming back again. So I don't have a problem saying Jesus is Lord. And the church said, Amen. we don't have a problem with that. Notice what Peter says here, though. He doesn't say he is Lord. He says that he is Lord and Christ. Now, Christ, again, some versions of your Bible might say Messiah. We don't have a problem with saying Jesus Christ, our Lord. We don't have a problem with saying Jesus, the Messiah. But are you aware of what the term Christ Christos, or Messiah, meant to a Jewish mind. And back in the good old days, the whole idea of Jesus being the Christ meant this, that he was the anointed one. He was the Christ, the anointed one. Anointed with what? Well, again, you've got to understand your Old Testament, your Old Covenant a little bit. Back in the good old days, People were anointed with oil. Prophets, priests, kings. Occasionally the Holy Spirit even, even came upon uh, artisans in order to do things like uh, the tabernacle to make sure that it was done exactly the way God wanted it to be. But people would be anointed with the Holy Spirit because they fulfilled a, a, a specific position or there was a certain responsibility that they had to do. But the Spirit came on people for a while and then left. You'll remember some of the more famous passages, like from the book of uh, Judges, when Samson is going through you know, the fields and he's killing the Philistines. And the Bible talks about, and the Spirit of God came upon Samson and he, and he had this power and he was able to wage war against his enemies. Or the Spirit of God, you know, came upon a prophet and they prophesied. Or that a priest was anointed with oil before they began their ministry. Or a king was anointed with oil at the time that they took the throne. And that anointing with oil, that, that, that pouring of oil, or that represented the coming of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes the Bible represents itself by saying this, that the Spirit literally came upon them, that it wasn't just represented by some kind of oil, but that it literally came upon them. But back under the Old Covenant, that's what that stuff meant. To be anointed meant to be empowered to do a certain thing. Prophet, priest, king, or in Samson's time, to be a judge. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do a certain thing, or perhaps certain things. Christ means anointed one, and if you break down the etymology of, of the word anointed one, it means this, to smear with oil. So Christ is both Lord and the one who is smeared with oil, who is smeared with the Holy Spirit. He is the one who also sends the Holy Spirit 
in his Father's name, as he said in the Gospels on several occasions. So when Peter declares that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, he is saying this, He is the one that suffered on the cross for your sins. He is the one that rose from the grave. He is the one that ascended to heaven. He is the one that will rule and reign. And he is the one who sends the Spirit. Because you have to understand Acts 2. Most people don't believe Jesus is anybody. They believe he's a criminal. They believe that he was killed by the Romans and that he is still behind some tomb and that good riddance with him. But what Peter is declaring, that it's the risen Lord, it's the anointed one now, that is pouring out the, the Spirit of God on these 120 who are now declaring the praises of him who called them out of darkness into his wonderful light in a language that they had never learned before. So then you ask the question, why that? Why not something else? I think some of the reasons are is because the pouring out of the Holy Spirit need to be identified by these people as something that they saw and heard for themselves. Again, they, under, the, under the Jewish history, all they know about is that really important people sometimes had the Spirit of God come upon them to do stuff. But the average person, nada. Nothing. And so Joel tells us that even ordinary people are going to receive the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be identified in all kinds of gifts. They will speak in tongues. They will dream dreams. They will have visions. It, it's not just the tongues. There will be tongues. seems to be the primary one. But all kinds of other things as well that will happen. And Peter is proclaiming this, that this isn't some kind of fluke. This isn't coming through the power of Peter or John or somebody else, one of the other 12 apostles. But the risen Savior is doing this. So the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was assigned to the people, all people, to the Jewish people. And this is why after this happens, Peter begins first and foremost to preach Jesus, right? The church is at its best when it preaches Jesus everywhere in the power of the Spirit. Peter didn't get up there and start preaching tongues or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Peter got up there after he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he preached Jesus. Jesus is the one that's done this. Jesus is the one that's baptized us in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who has empowered us, but he's up there preaching Jesus. The message of the Pentecostal church isn't that we still believe that God baptizes in the Holy Spirit and people will speak in other languages as the Spirit enables them. The message of the Pentecostal church is to preach Jesus' name and the power of the Spirit. Jesus is still our message and it's our only message. We just believe that there is an empowering from God that enables us to do that better than we could do in our own strength. That's why Jesus says to them, don't go anywhere, don't do anything until you've been baptized in the Spirit. I mean, they sat around. Now, I'm sure they prayed. We're given evidence to that in Acts 2. But for 10 days, they didn't do anything. Why not? Because they knew that they were going to be baptized in the Spirit, even though they weren't sure what that was. But baptism, they would have understood the word baptism means immerse. 
so that they would have known that they were going to be immersed in the Spirit, but they didn't know what, what to be immersed in the Spirit meant. So I think that this is why there's a physical sign. The 120 needed to know it happened, and those that were around on the day of Pentecost needed to know that it happened. And so there was this physical sign. Now the question is, does that stuff still happen today? So you move to Acts chapter 10, and you see another moment where this time it's Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 10, you have this Gentile family that Peter's been called to and he's been witnessing, and Peter starts preaching Jesus. Not tongues, not unknown languages, not gifts of the Spirit. He starts talking to them about Jesus, and in Acts chapter 10, verses 44, 45, 46, all of a sudden, this Gentile family begins to speak in other languages as the Spirit of God enables them, and the people that are around, and their Jewish people that are around, say this, even the Gentiles have been filled with the Holy Spirit. So if the Gentiles have been filled with the Holy Spirit, they too can be baptized in water and become part of the family of God. And so the giving of the Spirit was a sign that Jesus was working not only in the Jews, but working in the Gentiles as well. And in order for them to recognize that, again, it needed to be a physical sign, something seen, something heard, that they could put their finger on it and say, when that happened, we know that God accepted them into the family of God. Now hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the day that you're baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in other languages as the Spirit of God enables is the day that you get saved. I'm not saying that. These guys were Jesus worshipers and Jesus followers. It doesn't give us the moment, the time of day that they accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, but we know these 120 were devout Christ followers. They were with him for the 40 days. They waited for the 10 days. These people already knew who Jesus was. This isn't Peter getting born again by the Spirit. Peter clearly declares that this is about an empowering. These are already saved people. But it's about a work of God, a second work of God, that empowers them to do the work. Let me wrap it up because I know our time is short. I wish I had more time. Folks, if we're going to declare Jesus everywhere in the power of the Spirit, then you and I need to make sure that we are empowered by the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, and then there's some follow-up passages, and I mentioned one of them to you. In Acts chapter 10, talk about the empowering of the Spirit. Not born-again moments, but the empowering of the Spirit. That they were empowered, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit in order to be witnesses. What changed Peter? Just ask yourself this question if you're still kind of wondering. And again, I don't have time to dig into all of the theology today. But what changed Peter, right? What changed Peter from the guy that when the servant girl said, hey, aren't one of you, that Peter called curses down on himself? What changed Peter from that guy that ran away from Jesus to the guy now on the day of Pentecost that is standing in front of literally thousands of people? And we know that because it says later that after Peter preached Jesus, 3,000 got saved that day, that he's standing in front of thousands of people and enabled to do that. It's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Folks, we can't do this on our own. 
We can't do this in our own strength. We can't make a difference out there with our own cleverness and our own intellect and our own fleshly ability. Jesus said, don't go anywhere and don't do anything. Let me just read it one more time. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. What separates Peter from the guy that ran and fled from the servant girl to the guy that's declaring the word of God is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I I just don't think that you can make a greater argument for the need to be empowered and the understanding that when that empowerment comes, there will be a sign to identify that something new and something different has happened. And don't be afraid of that. Don't fear that. And we don't make a religion out of that. It's simply the sign. The tongues are the sign that we've been empowered. Then we go out in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and we talk to people about Jesus. Lord knows there need to be more of us talking about Jesus. Amen? Amen. And that is the church at its worst. That we're too good at gathering and not not good enough at dispersing. Would you stand with me and let's pray.